0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Big thanks this week to Plant Yourself Podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, and Anthony Disson. Thank you so much for your support. Shukrain, as the Berbers of Morocco say. And I'm happy to report that I placed a winning bid on a piece of audio equipment on eBay, a 286A DBX gate compressor, and you should start hearing the dulcet improvements in the audio quality pretty soon. In 1964, the Republican nominee for U.S. president was Senator Barry Goldwater, who was called extreme for his right-wing views. He retorted that, quote, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. So fast forward 50 some years and I'm talking to Dr. Alan Goldhammer, not Goldwater, but Goldhammer, who also embraces the idea of extreme as a really good place to be. So Dr. Goldhammer is co-author with Doug Lyle of a really important book, The Pleasure Trap. And he's co-founder and director of what I would consider one of the most important medical institutions in the world, the True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California. And it's important because using lifestyle medicine and supervised water fasting, Dr. Goldhammer and his staff at True North achieve medical miracles on a daily basis. And the way he puts it is water fasting in conjunction with their treatments and then returning to a whole food plant-based diet simply lets the body heal faster than it can be made sick. And my conversation with Dr. Goldhammer took him back to his desire as a teenager to beat Doug Lyle in basketball, something apparently he has still not accomplished. But it led him to a search for ways to improve his performance, ways to improve his health, and it led him to adopt a diet that I think most of us in the plant based community would consider extreme. Well, so this guy, I don't know how old he is, but he he looks like he's in his early 30s. He's clearly (laughs) older than I am. And so whatever you might think about his diet, it's clearly working. And when you talk to him about the way foods really taste in their natural state, I would be very surprised if he doesn't get more pleasure and enjoyment out of his, quote, extreme diet than 99.999% of the rest of us, including those of us in the whole food plant based movement. So this conversation was really interesting. He pulls no punches, refers to scientific literature, talks from his own experience and paints a picture of health that most of us, I don't think in our hearts really believe is possible. So without further ado, Dr. Alan Goldhammer, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Well, so uh, as I was I was just saying before we started recording, um, I've heard I've I've known about you for many years. I read The Pleasure Trap probably over over a decade ago, and um, I recently was encouraged by Chef AJ to to reach out to you. And she has wonderful wonderful stories about you that uh, that, that could you know you could go you could be in like a, a Marvel comic series. <laughs> Is, uh, she she uh, she talks about your, the bobblehead, which you're, you whatever she wants to eat. You say no. no. <laughs> so first of all, th- thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Um, so you, you're the, um, the the founding director of True North. Um, and I was doing a, a quick looking up of your of your bio. And so you, you started out by going to chiropractic school. So can yeah. you, so tell us a little bit about, like, when you grew up, were you eating really, really healthy as a kid?
1: Well, when I was about 16, I decided to do an experiment. I was um, very frustrated because I was playing basketball with uh, our clinical psychologist, Dr. Lyle. We grew up together, and he always beat me. And so I practiced really diligently, but it didn't help because he also practiced, and he continued to beat me. And then I thought I'd try to get an edge. So I started reading books on health, thinking if I got healthy, I could crush him. But the problem was, although I did get healthier, I adopted an exclusively plant food diet that was free of sugar, oil, and salt. So did he. And unfortunately, to this day, he continues to beat me every time we play. So it's a complete and total failure. But it did get me interested in this. I met a doctor, a chiropractor, actually, named Dr. Benish, who had been one of the founders of the National Health Association, and he said that this health job was the best job in the world because the patients did all the work and the body did all the healing and all you had to do as a doctor was take credit for the good results and I decided that was the job for me. (laughs) So I went to chiropractic college and then I got an opportunity to go to Australia, uh, attend the Pacific College of Osteopathic Medicine and train with Dr. Alec Burton, who at that time was probably the world's most experienced person using fasting uh, to treat a variety of uh, health conditions, and I had a chance to work in his clinic and see uh, something that I, up to that point, hadn't really experienced, which was people actually getting well. So it was a rather novel uh, opportunity to see sick people get well. I was really impressed after about one hundred and fifty uh, fasting patients, and uh, so when I came back, uh, my wife, Dr. Morano, and I uh, founded the True North Health Center in one thousand, nine hundred and eighty-four, and for the last three plus decades, we've been operating uh since then and the true north health center has grown. We're now a multidiscipline facility. We have four medical doctors and four chiropractors, a couple naturopaths, a psychologist, we've got a staff of 50. We see a thousand new patients a year in a 56-bed inpatient facility. And uh you know we've got a you know a growing operation uh based on this premise that health results from healthful living. So we teach our patients to live healthy. We focus on diet, sleep and exercise And we do a good job of supervising medically supervised fasting.
0: So I want to return to you as a 16-year-old. First of all, you know, first of all, deciding that you're going to get better through diet and nutrition. uh, And second of all, adopting a whole food plant-based diet. What what year was this and where were you getting your information?
1: Um, I had actually read Herbert Shelton's works on natural hygiene. And I was very impressed. I read his book, Human Life, Its Philosophy and Laws. He just made a lot of sense to me. And although it was in contrast to everything else that was commonly being uh, promulgated, it, ma- it totally rang, a- rang true. And so I decided to do an experiment. And at 16, I decided I would do a 50-year experiment. I would adopt a plant-based diet. I would do everything very diligently. And then I would reevaluate to see whether it was working. And, you know, so that was, you know, 41 years ago. It's, it seems to be working. So <laughs> I'm going to continue at least to complete that 50-year experiment, then I'll reevaluate. <laughs> and I've been asking my patients to do that since I went into practice. Not to commit to doing something forever, but just to do it as an experiment for, for 50, 50 years. For 50 years. And I got my, just got my first 30-year follow-up on a patient. This gentleman is now 85 years old. He was 55 when I first met him. Uh, he agreed to adopt the diet and lifestyle principles. And he says, looking back over the last 30 years, that it seems to be working because all his friends are dead. And, in fact, he lost one of his uh, children recently to a cardiac arrest. who's not doing the diet. So he said he was going to honor his commitment to me. Uh, and do it for another 20 years. But after that, he couldn't make any promises. So. <laughs> he, uh, I hadn't seen him in 14 years. He came in for a routine checkup. He was doing fine. He, and when he left, he set up another appointment in 14 years when he'll be 99. But he did say if anything came up, he'd let me know.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Well, you, you, you are much more gentle than, than I've heard. You do, you do give people an out after 50 years.
1: That's... Absolutely. What we say is after 50 years, we'll reevaluate.
0: Okay, so so when you, what what had you been eating um, before you turned sixteen? Was it terrible? I was or?
1: a fairly conventional, healthy diet. That is, we got a lot of fruits and vegetables, uh, but also included animal foods and you know uh, your more traditional processed foods. But um, at sixteen, I, I went ahead and you know made the commitment to make the change and. Uh, it didn't take very long before I started noticing, you know, definitely improved health and function. The only thing it didn't do was what I set out to do, which was to try to learn to beat Dr. Lyle uh, in basketball. But I'm still waiting. I'm hoping maybe if he gets old enough, uh, maybe he'll uh, develop a problem, and then I'll be able to beat him. <laughs>
0: did, did he did he change his diet right away?
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it was very annoying. <laughs> and he continues today. He's the clinical psychologist at the Trinidad Health Center, so... We're still, uh, and, you know, we we worked together on The Pleasure Trap. He, he did a fabulous job in writing that book. And uh, it was, uh, you know, a good explanation of why we think what we think. And so people that are interested in a disturbing book that doesn't tell them what they want to hear but does tell them what they need to know to get and stay healthy reading The Pleasure Trap is definitely worth the four hours to go through it.
0: So... Uh, we'll talk about the pleasure trap, but did you experience any of that for yourself when you uh, when you changed drastically at the age of 16? Did you find it hard to, to make that um, change?
1: Actually, not so much. I was, I was an exceptionally healthy and fit um, teenager, uh, never really had any health challenges. Um, I made uh, that transition without uh, a lot of uh, difficulties. I never had had you know, a cup of coffee or an alcoholic drink or never smoked a cigarette or used a drug. So I didn't have a lot of the intense detoxification to go through that many of my patients do. I didn't have decades of bad habits. Uh and I was fortunate enough, although I wasn't on a exclusively plant food SOS free diet as a kid, uh my family ate, you know, prepared a lot of food themselves. It wasn't uh, uh the typical diet that you might see in a family today. At that time, there were still lots of fruits and vegetables and healthy foods that were incorporated into the diet.
0: I see. So so your parents didn't look at you as if you'd suddenly um, you know, sprouted antlers or joined a cult? or. or...
1: Actually, they did. Um, at, uh, when I was about 16, I remember announcing to my family at my 16th birthday party that they had for me that I had, had decided to become a vegan and uh, that I would not be using any more sugar oil or salt And my mother was concerned. Uh, I had actually started a little bit before my birthday, and so she invited my uncle, who was a medical doctor, to the party to talk some sense into me. <laughs> and at first he told her not to worry that kids do all kinds of crazy things, and as long as I ate plenty of chicken and fish, I'd be fine. <laughs> and I explained to him that no, I, it's called being a vegan and we don't use any animal foods at all. He said it was called being a Michiganhuuga and I should stop it right away. Became very upset when later that day I also had announced that I had decided on my career path, and that I had decided to become a chiropractor, and he said, "No, I'm not to be a chiropractor. That nobody's allowed to go to a chiropractor, let alone be a chiropractor." He ultimately screaming at me said, "I better you should be a communist spy." <laughs> um, I remember my father took me aside. He was a pretty serious guy, and after they got rid of my uncle that night, he he said to me that. My uncle was a very respected physician that he was you know not at all in favor of becoming a chiropractor and he said anything that made him that angry and that mad well, it can't be bad so good luck to you son <laughs> And he encouraged me uh, very much so because he, he he knew anything that made him upset was probably probably a really good thing.
0: Gotcha. What made you decide on chiropractic as opposed to just you know?
1: Well 30 years ago if you wanted to do fasting supervision it was really the only way you could because as a medical doctor uh, fasting was considered uh, you know negligent behavior and no medical doctor would have been allowed to uh, get away with that and so the options in terms of getting primary care skills was to go into either chiropractic or naturopathy at that time naturopathic medicine wasn't well licensed so chiropractic was the logical um, vehicle and most of the people that i knew that were actually doing medically supervised fasting at the time and using this type of diet were chiropractors um, the chiropractic profession has always been open and sympathetic to the idea of nutrition as a principal component in healing um, after i finished chiropractic college um, i felt that i needed uh, more specific training and specifically medical supervised fasting. And So I had the opportunity to go to osteopathic college in Australia and study with Dr. Burton, who ran a hospital that did fasting supervision, the Arcadia Health Center. And so that's where, you know, what what drove me to Australia and, and, um, and, and to get that additional training.
0: Gotcha. So what did you see when you studied uh, in Australia with Dr. Burton that convinced you that fasting was such a powerful modality?
1: Well, I saw these patients coming in conditions that I knew from my training couldn't respond. And I kept saying, well, boy, if this one gets well, I'll really be convinced. And I must have said that 50 or 60 times during that year and a half that I was there. Uh, I saw people with conditions uh, like high blood pressure and diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis and ulcerative colitis and asthma and eczema consistently getting well. Uh, diseases that, you know, under the medical professions, conventional treatment, that is drugs or surgery, you're guaranteed one thing, and that is you'll never get well. If you have high blood pressure, you're told you'll be on medications for the rest of your life. The only promise is that you'll absolutely never, ever recover. And the same thing's true with diabetes and autoimmune diseases. People are sick forever under conventional treatment. And I saw them routinely actually getting well, getting off their medications, and learning to manage their condition without drugs or surgery uh, in a consistent and, and rather profound way. And after you see it enough times, you start realizing maybe there's something to it. Hmm.
0: So I'm I'm actually a lot of people are listening and thinking, so, you know, where's the published evidence? And I, I remember a story that when I was talking to, uh, T. Colin Campbell, when we were working on, on Hull, he mentioned that there was some difficulty getting you published.
1: Well, you know, Dr. Campbell at the time, uh, that he came in and, uh, became aware of our work and decided to help us get published. They had already published uh, over 200 articles in the scientific literature, and never really had much trouble publishing. But uh, we did a study it's, uh, on 174 consecutive patients with high blood pressure. And 174 patients were able to lower their pressure enough to eliminate the need for medication. We ended up with the largest effect sizes that have ever been shown in treating high blood pressure in humans, with an average drop of over 60 points in stage three hypertension. And that's in addition to the fact that although they started off medicated, they ended up off medications. So whatever effect medications would have would have been additive to that average drop of 60 points. Um, Once we had completed that paper, uh, Dr. Campbell helped us submit it to uh, a number, actually a couple dozen major medical journals, all of which that reviewed it and ultimately rejected it for various reasons. and, you know, he said he was rather shocked because, you know, he'd never really had trouble publishing articles before. But this particular article, that said the leading cause of death and disability, that is hypertension and its associated diseases, uh, was best treated by essentially doing nothing, therapeutic water-only fasting. For some reason, that seemed to raise uh, some concerns. Ultimately, we did get it published in a peer-reviewed index journal, in part because one of our interns had been the research assistant to the editor of the journal. Ultimately, became the most downloaded article the journal's ever uh, published, and it helped us uh, later publish a second uh, article, uh, Medically Supervised Fasting and the Treatment of Both Hypertension and Borderline Hypertension. And Those articles are available uh, in total on our website for people that want to review it. Um, the, uh, later, we were able to publish some additional uh, reports, and most recently, I'm really happy to say, we've uh, had our case report published in the British Medical Journal. Um, we took a um, patient that had been diagnosed with uh, stage 3A follicular lymphoma, which is a, a lymph cancer. She had lemon-sized tumors, easily externally palpated, been tracked for over two years at a major medical center, um, had had an excisional biopsy and spiral CTs and been well documented. Um, after a couple of years, the condition continued to progress, and they were contemplating um, exposing her to conventional Therapy. Uh, when she asked them about diet as an alternative, they said that diet really didn't have anything to do with the condition. When she queried about fasting, they dismissed that as, um, you know, quackery. Uh, so, with that encouragement, she came in and fasted with us for 21 days on water, only during which time her tumors completely uh, were eliminated from, uh, just couldn't palpate anything, everything resolved. Mm-hmm. We refed her for 10 days and sent her back to the medical center and her oncologist, who was a little bit startled, uh, asked her what had happened. She explained that she had gone through the fasting process. He commented that uh, he would have to contact us. Um, With uh, her insistence, they did a follow-up. Spiral CT confirmed uh, the changes. and uh, so Then we submitted this uh, report after a one-year follow-up to the British Medical Journal, which, interestingly enough, ultimately... After several uh, reviews and uh, revisions, did decide to publish uh, the uh, report, and it came out a couple weeks ago. And uh, you know, it is uh, she's continues to do really well. Uh, The unique thing is, of course, they acknowledged that the approach was therapeutic water-only fasting and a exclusively plant food diet that was SOS-free. SOS, of course, stands for the international symbol of danger and stands for sugar, oil, and salt. So. The diet that we recommend for her and for our other patients is an p- exclusively plant food diet that does not contain any of the added chemicals that are responsible for people being fat and sick, which include oil and sugar and, and added salt.
0: Gotcha. So I'm, I'm looking at the table one and the, the BMI, the body mass index, at diagnosis almost 30. Um, at the end of the fast, so I guess after 21 days or, or 31 days, uh, it was uh, just a little over 25. And then at nine-month follow-up, it's at roughly 22, which, which like makes her a Kenyan.
1: Well, no, it actually makes her at almost her optimum weight. Uh, <clears throat> she's uh, done something rather unique, which she to continue to comply with the diet. So she's maintained uh, a healthy but lean uh, structure. She looks and feels fabulous. And, of course, now we have ongoing follow-ups. She continues to do well. So, you know, the fact is that this approach requires two things. Number one, uh, it requires uh, fasting. And number two, it requires compliance with uh, diet, sleep, and exercise. So it's only really good for people that are willing to do what it takes to get and stay healthy. And that's to live healthy.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So... You have here a a single case study that's you know incredibly suggestive of like future research and and uh, you know for the entire medical profession to embrace this protocol as a best practice. And I know it's only been out for for a couple of months. Has anything happened? Has have yes.
1: As a matter of fact, it has. We've recently uh, completed a, a, a negotiations with uh, Luigi Fontana, who's an MD PhD researcher from Washington University who's been doing a lot of human subjects research on fasting. And he, along with his uh, sponsor, the Buck Institute, um, has agreed to make True North Health Center the location for recruitment and conduction of ongoing research with fasting. And they're looking at biomarkers that include predictors of cancer, Alzheimer's, aging, as well as the gut microbiome. And so we'll be uh, recruiting patients this year to go through uh, medically supervised fasting using our protocol and we'll be looking uh, with the help of the Buck Institute and Dr. Fontana at the changes that occur in these biomarkers. Now there's been tremendous uh, interest in this uh, because in animal studies they've shown that you can actually reverse the factors associated with aging as well as cancers, alzheimer's and microbiome changes and the presumption is that those changes will also occur uh, in fasting humans and if they do will have proven a viable means of uh, dealing with the real cure for cancer, which is prevention, Ca- catching things early enough that the body is still capable through normal Im- immunological functions of reversing it. So we're very excited about those changes, and it's going to allow us to get access to you know sophisticated laboratory and sophisticated individuals that can help us do a better job of figuring out you know how to do what we're doing better, how to objectify it, market and actually publish in you know, hopefully some of the biggest impact journals on the planet.
0: Gotcha. So, so there's, there's what you've published and what you can kind of stand behind and, you know, and point to as uh, scientifically acceptable evidence. And then there's all the stuff you do and the thousands and thousands of people who've been through the, the fasting program and the refeeding and the education program. What else can fasting followed by a good diet do what can, what else can it reverse who el- who else should be listening to this and sure. saying boy this could help me
1: So we have a, we're a 501c3 nonprofit foundation called the True Health Foundation and our mission is public education and research and what we're doing right now thanks to some very generous benefactors is we've hired uh, a team including Tasha Myers who's a PhD postdoc from Columbia University um, uh, David Goldman who's a, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, exercise physiology guy. We have um, some new medical staff as well that's helping us do some analysis of the 15,000 patients that we've already had through the program, looking retrospectively at their uh, uh, data. And so we're analyzing that data uh, right now. And it's very clear that there are certain conditions that respond uh, very consistently. And interestingly enough, it's conditions that seem to have as their cause Uh, dietary excess. So conditions that are made worse through dietary excess seem to respond particularly well to therapeutic water-only fasting and a health-promoting diet, as you would expect. Obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes type 2, and a whole host of autoimmune diseases that are thought to be uh, nutritionally related. Uh, gut leakage related, et cetera. So, you know, your rheumatoid and osteoarthritis, your ulcerative colitis, your ankylosis spondylitis, your asthma, your eczema, your psoriasis. These conditions that uh, most integrative medicine practitioners recognize can respond to diet and lifestyle manipulation respond particularly well uh, to this approach. Uh, and so, they're, they're, uh, in the case of uh, lymphoma, we've certainly seen that, you know, this is a condition even apparently in later stages can reverse. Although our biggest focus is trying to get to people before uh, they become debilitated by their disease or medical care. Um, and that are you know, obviously all conditions that tend to be more amenable, uh, particularly to conservative care if you can deal with it early on. Mm-hmm.
0: So what is it, what is it about water fasting that makes it better than say, okay, I'm just going to like you at 16, just clean up my diet.
1: Right. Well, absolutely, everybody needs to focus on diet, sleep, and exercise. That's the foundation of health and healthful living. Fasting is a facilitator, though. The changes that occur in fasting uh, that take place in days or weeks can take sometimes months or years of healthy eating to occur. And as a consequence, not everybody has the fortitude to be disciplined enough to stick to the program while they're going through the various healing responses. So, for example, um, if when you're trying to help people eliminate the need for medication... Um, you can get changes in a in a couple three weeks of fasting that could take a long time otherwise and not and not everybody especially if they're feeling really poorly is able to do the diet and lifestyle work if you have bad rheumatoid arthritis it's hard to exercise or sleep because you're in constant pain it's hard to withdraw the pain medication uh... it's hard to get the gut floral changes to get rid of the gut leakage but if you fast a lot of times all of that can be accomplished in, in just a few weeks and it, it makes it a little bit more practical fasting also is very uh, useful. There's a number of different mechanisms uh, associated with fasting. Uh, Obviously not just weight loss, but there's a natuuretic effect that occurs where the body gets rid of excess sodium. There's a detoxification effect where the body rapidly mobilizes and eliminates both intermediary products and metabolism, as well as toxic uh, end products, things like PCB, dioxin, pesticide residues, chemicals. These things are all apparently mobilized during fasting. Fasting induces enzyme systems both associated with detoxification as well as uh, macronutrient mobilization. So there's a a number of different mechanisms we believe um, are uh, activated by fasting. And in fact in 2014 in the Journal of Metabolism one of our colleagues, Walter Longo, has published a good overview of the effects both in animal studies and limited human studies uh, the changes that are occur- we believe are happening in fasting. In fact, in that article, he cites our research on hypertension um, as an example of you know, human changes that, that have occurred. So uh, for people that are interested, they can actually go to our website, and we have uh, an exhaustive list of both our published studies as well as uh, links to other studies that are relevant to fasting. Mm-hmm. If they go to www.fasting.org, um, they will be able to find uh, a lot of useful information, both uh, articles as well as video clips.
0: Great. Is is there a theoretical yeah. understanding of why fasting is so powerful? Does it have to do with the fact that, as, as you've uh, written and, and given lectures about, that human beings evolved in a an environment of scarcity?
1: Well, you know, human beings uh, are unique uh, in relation to fasting compared to most other animals. For example, chimpanzees do not fast and that they their brain doesn't convert from burning glucose to primary fuel to burning beta-hydroxybutyric acid which is a of fat metabolism humans do and apparently the only humans that survived wandering away from the tropics were the ones that had this biological adaptation and it, it was so important to the survival of humans that it became uh... the rule now today virtually all human beings have this biological adaptation they will convert their primary source of glucose burning, which is the brain, this hugely out-of-proportion large bulbous neuronal net at the end of our spinal column, from burning glucose to burning uh, fat. Uh, And that ability allows us to go without food for a prolonged period of time, unlike, for example, a chimp that maybe only can go a week or so. uh, uh, An average 70-kilogram male could fast about 70 days uh, because of this efficiency. And that's one of the reasons why you suspect that fasting would be safe, is because it is an adaptive response of the human organism. And as a consequence, all we've done is taken this normal biological adaptation that allowed us to survive when spring came late and use it to help overcome the conditions of dietary excess. In a natural setting, we never would have had consistent dietary excess. There is no uh, persistent obesity, etc. But in our modern world, uh, we can become, in fact, we routinely become overweight and develop these diseases of dietary excess that used to be known as the disease of kings. And we do this because of the, the mechanism we describe in our book, The Pleasure Trap. The artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain by these, art, these chemicals, like oil and sugar, uh, cause a hypernormal stimuli, and as a consequence, we persistently fool our brains and overeat and when you overeat consistently you develop consistently the diseases of dietary excess and that's what cardiovascular disease and diabetes and autoimmune diseases largely are hmm.
0: so so i think what, when i first heard of fasting it sounded very appealing to the to the part of my brain that wanted a quick fix <laughs> Right. Like, like, you know, let me just do something heroic for a short period of time. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't even doing the 50 year experiment. I was just doing like a one, a one week experiment. Um, how, how do you work with people who, and you know, do people come in with that sort of mindset? Like this is some sort of miracle cure. And then I can just go back to what I was doing before.
1: Well, I have a rather unique practice because, you know, we don't, We're not in the phone book. We don't advertise or have a sign. Everybody we see is on referral, either from a patient that's been through the program or uh, through a physician that's referring them to us. And as a consequence, we get highly motivated patients. So most of our patients are motivated either by a profound uh, psychological desire to be healthy and happy or more commonly by debilitating pain and fear of death and debility. And so patients that are in enough pain are willing to do even dangerous and radical things like eat good or exercise or go to bed on time or even, if necessary, fast. Um, So I don't treat a lot of people that are um, more, what you would say, casual in their attitude. Uh, And as a consequence, I I essentially get everybody else's best patients. I know my colleague, Dr. McDougall, refers to us as the punishment. If somebody does his program and for whatever reason their pressure doesn't come down enough or their weight doesn't come down enough, he'll, he'll send them to us uh, kind of as a, as a, con, a consolation treatment. Um, and, you know, to some degree that's true. They say our sign outside the facility should say the last resort uh, because it really is motivated patients that are willing to do something like therapeutic water-only fasting or adopt a very strict plant-based diet without sugar, oil, and salt, get enough sleep and exercise. But for those highly motivated patients, this works remarkably well, and our patient satisfaction with the disease are very high, despite the fact that you know, we don't tell people what they want to hear. We just tell them what they need to know.
0: So let's, let's talk about the concept of the pleasure trap for, for a little bit, and then you know, how water fasting can, uh, can play into that. So what, what, what do you mean by the pleasure trap?
1: Well, people essentially are addicts. Just like cocaine and alcohol can artificially stimulate the dopamine cascade in the brain and lead to an addictive response, now you have to keep taking the drug not just to feel good, but to avoid feeling bad, kind of the hallmark of addiction. The same thing happens with certain chemicals added to the food supply. And those chemicals particularly are oil and sugar, uh, and to a slightly different uh, degree added salt. As a consequence, when you put these chemicals like oil and sugar in the food, for example, of rats, Rats that are fed ad libitum get to a certain size, but you put those chemicals in their food, they increase their weight 49% in 60 days. So the same thing happens to people. When you give them ad libitum whole natural foods, they get to a certain size, but you put these chemicals in their food, they get fat. And when they get fat, they develop the diseases of dietary excess, the cardiovascular disease, the diabetes, and the autoimmune disease, as well as certain types of cancer. And as a consequence, what what we... what we're saying is that people are literally trapped by this artificial stimulation of dopamine, the neurochemical associated with pleasure, into an addictive response. And that's why two thirds of people in society, in industrialized societies, are either overweight or obese, because they're addicts. And so the way you have to treat them is very much akin to treating alcoholism. You don't tell alcoholics, well, just drink less and you'll be okay. Or put your alcohol in a smaller cup. Or stir your alcohol with a small spoon and drink your alcohol with a spoon and you won't be a drunk anymore. (laughs) We know that's ridiculous because it doesn't work. What you would tell alcoholics is you need to stop drinking entirely. Stop putting the chemical in your body that's poisoning you and fooling your brain and leading to addiction. Now, let's go to treating obese patients. We tell them what? Eat less. Put your food on a smaller plate. Chop your food into little bits and chew more and you won't be fat anymore. And it fails completely because just like an alcoholic is not going to be successful unless they stop drinking. Overweight people and people with dietary excess diseases do not succeed unless they stop fooling their brain with the chemicals that are making them fat and sick. And so one of the ways that you can break that cycle, whether it's an alcoholic or a person that's caught caught in the dietary pleasure trap, is fasting. Fasting rapidly recalibrates their taste and their adaptive mechanisms. It's very much like taking a computer that's got some corruption on its hard drive and rebooting it. A lot of times you don't know exactly how it did it, but once you've rebooted your computer, a lot of times it goes back to working really well. And with fasting, the same thing happens, is you're recalibrating taste narrative mechanisms. Good foods start to taste good. The addictive response is mitigated. Uh, The pain and inflammation associated with the problem is resolved. The gut leakage that leads to a lot of the triggering of the pain is healed. And so it's a very revolutionary and rather radical way of giving the body a chance to do what it does best, and that's heal itself. And it does it more rapidly than any any other way that we've been able to identify. So even though it can be an intense and unpleasant experience at times, as long as people have good results, they often forgive us for that.
0: <laughs> so um, after I read the pleasure trap, I tried my own seven day water fast. Um, so and at the by the end of which I understood why there was a center in which I would be um, you know, kept, kept safe. Um, so according, according to, I I don't remember this myself, but my family said that I became insufferable. Um, and the other thing I remember is that it's, on the eighth day, I ate, I broke the fast with some, uh, chunks of steamed zucchini and it was the most intensely flavorful thing I've ever eaten in my life.
1: Actually what happened was that zucchini tastes just like it always tastes but for the first time in a while you were actually able to detect the proper taste of zucchini because you were you had neuro adapted your taste back to their normal level rather than have been perverted and denuded essentially by your artificially stimulating previous diet, your taste got reset back to their normal caliber of level. And that's why people come in and oftentimes don't like the food at first because it's you know tasteless swill. It doesn't have salt and sugar and oil and all that stuff. But by the time they're done fasting, it often tastes very good. And sometimes you actually have trouble convincing them it's the same food <laughs> because it's such a different experience. Uh, but the reality is you tasted what zucchini tastes like to all of us that eat a health promoting diet. Um, it's delicious.
0: Uh, so so, so, had I continued eating as purely uh, SOS-free and carefully, the, the zucchini would have tasted like that a week later, a month later, and today?
1: In fact, it may be even more enhanced because not everything resolves in a week of fasting. A week of fasting is a relatively brief intervention. And it's cumulative, both the changes in taste but also the... Um, uh, the other neurochemical changes with fasting, like, for example, enzymatic induction of detoxifying factors is also enhanced and cumulative in fasting. So every time somebody fasts, you get a compounding effect.
0: Hmm. So, so how long uh, would some, does somebody need to fast for... You know, well, they how, need to
1: fast long enough that they can be getting well faster than they're getting sick. You know, in some conditions, it's easy with high blood pressure, we fast until people have healthy pressures. And our target for blood pressure is 90 over 60. So, you know, getting them as close to 90 over 60 as we can off medication. And that's going to range from 5 to 40 days. And some patients, it'll be several fasts. Um, some people, you know, it doesn't take long. They do well quickly. Other people, it can be a long and arduous uh, intervention.
0: Uh-huh. So pe- do people check in uh, with sort of an open-ended uh, exit date?
1: Well. At- at the True North Health Center, we're very flexible. People can stay as short or as long as they want. There's no program. There's no. They're not locked into anything. I have people that are here for a week. I have. So I have one patient here now that's been here a, a year and a half. So, you know, because our pri- price point is quite low, uh, people find like we're you know two thousand dollars a month less than staying in senior housing or a nursing home or something. So for an older, sicker person, this is a cost-effective alternative. Um, for uh, businessmen that are in town, we're cheaper than the local hotel so they can stay here and get their meals for less than what they would spend you know, to be at the Doubletree or something. So, uh, And for people, sometimes they're healthy, but they're just looking for uh, a place to go that they can eat healthy, get some education, and uh, you know, so it's an inexpensive vacation. And for people that are sick, um, it's really a more cost-effective alternative than anything else they're going to look at. So we try to keep the price point affordable. As a nonprofit uh, foundation, we're able to you know, get help to keep our price point much lower than the competitive alternatives.
0: Gotcha. So if I I might, I want to ask about some of the specific details of the dietary pattern you recommend. And, And one of them, so I've never been a coffee drinker. I didn't grow up drinking coffee. I thought the smell was kind of funky. And I think at some point in my childhood, somebody told me that drinking coffee would stunt my growth and I I wanted to be tall. But these days, I'm reading all these studies about the health benefits of coffee. um, And I'm I'm not sure what to make of it.
1: What my, my colleague, Dr. McDougall, likes to say is people love good news about their bad habits. And so right now you got all kinds of media attention to health food, you know, coffee, red wine, dark chocolate, uh, olive oil, you know, animal foods of all kinds. So people are, you know, as long as they're talking about things people want to hear about, that'll make the media. Of course, it's all unmitigated nonsense. Uh, you know, ca- coffee, uh, although there may be some traces of uh, antioxidants and other factors that, that aren't destroyed in the processing and development of a given product. For example, you know, you heard a lot about resveratrol in red wine. Right. And it's true, there's an antioxidant in the skin of grapes that's not completely destroyed when you brew up red wine. Now you could tell people to eat grapes, but that wouldn't be nearly as attractive, would it? So instead they're going to justify trace amounts of resveratrol and the drug-like effect of, of alcohol to have a bit of a butt- blood thinning effect to some justification for taking this noxious agent. Now the fact is that aspirin also has a drug thinning effect and that's why they tell you if you take aspirin uh... if you're at high risk for a clotting stroke because you're on some greasy fatty slimy dead decaying flesh diet um, that you know you have a slightly risk reduced risk of clotting stroke but they don't mention that you might have an increased risk of a hemorrhagic stroke and that there's not much evidence of reduced all-cause mortality they say statistics don't lie but liars use statistics And when it comes to things like coffee and alcohol uh, you know they're definitely telling you what you want to hear. The fact is caffeine an important component in coffee is a highly addictive nervous system stimulant It needs to be avoided. There's two thousand other chemicals in coffee not the least of which is a highly acidic nature which ask anybody with gastritis or, or stomach sensitivities about how good coffee feels on them and they'll tell you that's one of the substances that they're going to recommend avoiding. The uh, Caffeine has a 17 hour half-life which means even the coffee you're drinking early in the morning but still have an effect on the quality of your sleep later in the day. So the fact that the media is talking a lot about these various health foods as health, healthy is, is just, just that. It's hype. What we should talk about is healthy foods, not health foods. And healthful foods are fruits and vegetables, grains legumes, nuts and seeds. A whole natural foods, minimally processed. That's the foods that people need to focus on. Not all the highly processed, uh, economically uh, advantageous health foods.
0: Okay. So um, I've read that you guys don't use wheat products or gluten in the in, in your recommended diet. You know, whole wheat is a whole grain. Is there something special about it? It is.
1: Unfortunately, wheat particularly has been uh, manipulated quite a bit. If you look at uh, information on wheat, the wheat that we ate today is a little different than the, the ancient grains that we might have been exposed to. And the consequence of that appears to be a problem, at least for a percentage of the population. We know definitively that at least one percent of the population has celiac disease, which is an immunological reaction to the gut when exposed to gluten. Everybody pretty much agrees those patients need to avoid exposure. It turns out there's another significant percentage of the population that has the positive HLA-DQ gene, which is associated with gliadin sensitivity, and not coincidentally Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is suggested that patients eating Uh, getting exposed to gluten, although they may not develop celiac disease and react to the colon, they may develop other hypersensitivity problems, including where the immune system attacks the thyroid gland, as in Hashimoto's thyroiditis may be an aggravating factor there, In rheumatoid arthritis, where the immune system is attacking the joints of the tissue, and many other autoimmune and hypersensitivity syndromes. What we found is by the elimination of uh, wheat, rye, and barley, and um, a lot of the highly processed uh, refined flour products that are associated with these products, our patients have a much easier time losing weight and maintaining uh, disease and pain-free state. So there may very well be many people that can do uh, some of those products and do well with it. Uh, we, we choose to eliminate that because it's common enough, at least in our population, that avoiding it altogether seems to be an
0: advantage. Gotcha. And so the, the last one is salt, which, you know, I've... Um... I've seen studies that suggest that, you know, population studies, mortality studies that, that frankly, have me very confused about whether limiting salt is a good idea for everyone. Now, clearly, you're SOS-free, so what what do you make of the kind of epidemiological studies well, that, that no, look salt, at
1: salt? Well, salt, sodium is an essential nutrient critical to survival. Uh, it's uh, inherent in our food, and that's one of the things why we're so sensitive to salt is because it was important for us to be able to detect plants that had some sodium in there, it's one of the nutrients that we need to get. It was such a rare commodity before we learned how to process salt that it was used as a media of exchange, um, as as money, in essence. Um, So now we know that salt is a precious and, and essential nutrient. The problem is your body's designed to hold on to it because it is so rare and precious in a natural setting. And as a consequence, when you expose yourself to highly processed excess quantities of salt, At least a third of the population does such a good job of holding on to it that the blood volume goes up and they get high blood pressure and they develop uh, joint pain and other problems. So the limitation of sodium to the amount of salt naturally occurring in the food rather than adding this highly processed um, sodium chloride uh, substance to our food turns out to be uh, a huge advantage from a health standpoint. And it also allows people to neuroadapt to a healthy diet, so it eliminates the overeating associated with artificially stimulating our taste buds with things like salt and sugar and oil. So there's a lot of advantages to limiting salt. And yes, it's true that many people could eat more than the, the, the baseline amount of salt, the gram or gram and a half a day that's naturally inherent in food. We find it is an advantage to encourage people to eliminate added salt, uh, limit their sodium intake to the, the salt that's naturally present in a whole natural foods diet like we recommend and and i think there's more and more evidence coming out in fact that reducing uh, sodium intake does have broad uh, advantages although that research is still certainly controversial and the food industry itself is certainly sponsoring as much manipulated data as possible to suggest that it's okay to continue to eat large amounts of added salt because quite frankly their highly processed foods take like crap without the salt added to it you wouldn't eat it so salt becomes a very essential chemical that's necessary in order to fool people's brains, so they'll continue to eat all these highly processed, refined food products. Gotcha.
0: So I understand the you know the idea that salt wasn't available in great quantities till we learned how to uh, synthesize it, that oil wasn't available till we learned how to you know press it and store it, and that refined sugar is a relatively new thing. But animal products have been with us for a long time. Um, Yes. Since the
1: beginning of time, humans uh, undoubtedly ate animal foods whenever they got the opportunity. Although we know from anthropological data that it's probably not the meat that was the dominant source of early uh, humanoids, but rather things like bone marrow and other things that were left over after the scavengers were done. We were clever creatures. We learned how to get to things that they couldn't get to in terms of bone marrow. So. You know, I don't know that we're going to make the case that uh, large quantities of meat were a routine for the vast majority of human and humanoids that have inhabited the planet, but clearly wasn't a a part of a diet in many cases and, and probably routinely. And I do not classify meat as a pleasure trap food. It is a whole food. The problem with meat, of course, is many. One big problem today with animal foods is biological concentration. Animals biologically concentrate toxins from the environment, the drugs we use, the chemicals we induce. And so a calorie of animal food is going to have many times the likely concentration of various toxins that a calorie of plant food, even conventionally raised plant food does. So biological concentration is a problem. Everybody recognizes bacteria is a problem. You know, When you kill an animal and the flesh begins to decay, you have to cook it uh, sufficiently to to get rid of the bacteria or you could die. We know there's contaminants like bovine leukemia virus and, and, and Crushfield Jacob disease threats from prions and all kinds of other contaminants that tend to be dominant in animal foods. And some people make the moral, ethical, and spiritual arguments that you know, taking sentient creatures and torturing them all their life and killing them may not be a good thing. Uh, many are now making an environmental argument that the cost to the planet of our uh, animal-based diets uh, may be substantial and, and devastating. So there's a lot of arguments to be made to minimize uh, animal food intake. Arguing that that we're not designed to eat animal foods isn't one that I would try to make. I would just argue that we seem to be better off minimizing or avoiding animal products. Uh, and I know in my own case, I've been able to diligently do that uh, for over 40 years. And so far, it seems to be working quite well.
0: Right. And that's that's kind of the... the um... The differentiation that I wanted to get to is between minimizing and avoiding, because in terms of pleasure trap psychology and, uh, you know, taste bud adaptation, there are certain things that it makes sense to avoid. Like you, you use the example of an alcoholic, you know, or a sugar addict. Whereas, so so where where do you find... I, I wouldn't
1: it... rate meat that way. People can have... They learn about this in their own experience. They can have the occasional piece of fish, and they're not going to necessarily have... Un, controllable cravings and have to run out and eat the whole ocean. Um, they they could eat it and maybe not think about it again for a long time. Now, granted, every time you take a mouthful of fish, you gotta wonder, is this the mouthful that has the mercury that's gonna push me over the edge? Is this the one with the parasites? Is this the one with the other biological contaminants? So it's not without its risk, but it's not a pleasure trap issue unless you're cooking it with oil or frying it or doing, you know, adding pleasure trap chemicals. Um, it, it wouldn't be in the same class of addictive response that we would put other things. Now, I would argue that dairy products are, dairy products are a highly processed animal food product that do have pleasure trap characteristics, unlike, say, eating you know, flesh. So um, we, we definitely recommend dairy products be excluded entirely and completely. If a person, for whatever reason, wants to have their chunk of skunk or whatever, we just you know minimize exposure, minimize quantity and hope that, uh, you know, they don't get contaminated in that particular exposure.
0: Mm -hmm. Are are there people who can have some of the pleasure trap ingredients without having the pleasure trap response?
1: Yes. Yeah, there's just like there are people that can have a drink of wine or beer and not become a drunk. There are people that can have occasional chocolate or whatever and not become obese. But let's be clear, if you're an alcoholic, that's not you. You can't have alcohol if you're an alcoholic because you know from experience that the next thing you know you're going to be waking up under the Golden Gate Bridge naked wondering how you got there. As far as if you're fat, it's not you. If you could have controlled it, you would have controlled it. It's not like you haven't tried. So for people that are obese, they need to recognize they're not able to just have one. And as a consequence, they need to you know eliminate those chemicals from their diet if they're going to be successful. We know that in alcoholics, if you go to the Betty Ford Center, or one of these highly successful alcohol treatment facilities and spend you know, large amounts of money on a 30-day program and go to 90 visits in 90 days uh, to a 12-step program and you have family support, failure rate exceeds 70%. And in in obesity, patients that are 100 pounds of weight or over, pretty much no matter what they do, failure rates are in the 90-95% range. So. We know that as hard as it is to quit alcohol, even with support, it's even harder to lose weight and keep it off. And it's because we lie to our overweight patients and tell them to just have a little bit. And, you know, we we give them uh, a false sense of uh, possibility that they can indulge in their addictions and get away with it. And it's just not true. So once they learn, okay, this is something I have to avoid, then they have at least a fighting chance to be successful. And that's what we do for patients.
0: Gotcha. So someone comes to you. They spend however much time they need to um, on on a water fast to readjust. They then you then feed them, show them how to eat, teach them how to eat. What do you recommend for people who then go home? (laughs) and have to live in the world. They
1: give us our 50-year follow-up, which means they maintain a health-promoting diet, sleep, and exercise program for 50 years and then reevaluate it. And now sometimes people need ongoing support. Some people will, like like my 85-year-old I hadn't seen in 14 years and he continues to do well. Other people will come in once or twice a year, sometimes for brief periods of time. We tell people, here's how you know you need to fast. Number one, good foods don't taste good to you. You can't eat them anymore because you've become caught in the pleasure trap Sometimes a few days or a couple weeks of fasting is enough to get it back, like you experienced, where good foods taste good again. Somebody's doing, so that's one person that knows they need to fast because they don't like to eat good foods. Maybe they used to like to eat them, but they've lost that because of the pleasure trap. Or maybe they've never had it because they weren't fortunate enough to be raised by people that fed them healthy foods. So they need to fast long enough to where good foods taste good, so then they can enjoy it. Um, Some people are eating a healthy diet. They're eating a vegan SOS-free diet, but their blood pressure is still too high or their weight isn't coming off quickly enough or they're having some autoimmune diseases. They need to fast long enough so that when they go back on their healthy diet, they get well faster than they get sick. Some people have lymphoma or they have other problems that are life-threatening. And we don't have time to wait for the diet alone to turn it around. So we want to speed things up. We're going to use fasting. Those are the people that fast or perhaps the people that get the most benefit are the ones that are already healthy, they enjoy the diet, they're eating the diet, they don't have problems, but they want to maintain that. And they use fasting prophylactically to not only keep themselves sharp physically, but also mentally and psychologically. And it may not be a long fast, but they, they'll come in and use, uh, they'll do periodic fasting just as a health promotion, health preventative opportunity to get a rest, opportunity to get re-oriented um, educationally and re-inspired.
0: Mm-hmm gotcha so but in, in our society everywhere you turn there is a trigger to eat a pleasure trap food or an animal food you know when when people leave or you know you're you're saying goodbye to them you're shaking their hand they're thanking you profusely for giving you the credit for what their bodies and, and the diet have done you know how do how do you help people stay well- strong
1: Sure. Local people, we have something called True North Health Kitchen where we actually make them vegan SOS free foods affordably and they can pick that food up and not have to shop and chop. So our local patients have the ability to get support through our food service. Um, we offer, we have a website that's informationally intense and we continue to put new information on there and videos and lectures. Um, we speak around the country. We have um, we're training 30 doctors a year that go through our facility that learn how to apply these principles, and they're going out and we use them as referral sources. Um, many groups uh, are, are forming now in terms of uh, meetup groups and these kinds of places to provide ongoing support. But I have to say, adopting a health-promoting diet and lifestyle in a world designed to make you fat, sick, and miserable is amongst the most difficult things patients could ever do in their life. It's a huge challenge. Some patients use us. Our doctors all do phone consultation. Uh, as well as, again, for the people that live locally, they can use us as their primary care doctors, their chiropractors, their psychologists. For remote people, our, our doctors, particularly our medical doctors, do offer phone consultative services to provide support. And we're actually researching right now through our nonprofit foundation the most effective web-based, scalable mechanisms provide to provide ongoing support. We'll actually be doing a study looking at which systems work the best um, through our fasting.org website. So... You know, we recognize this is an ongoing challenge. I have to say that my patients that have the most serious diseases have the easiest time complying because if they get out of line, they get into pain and the pain drives them back into behavior. <laughs> um, so I kinda like people that have diseases that give them in inordinate amounts of pain and debility because they tend to be very compliant patients. Right. So I'm sure you That's you've why been- I like conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and you know, things where they can't even have a single meal without them being able to notice um, changes.
0: Mm. I'm, I'm sure you've been asked this uh, before. But I'm asking a, a selfish question. Any plans to, to set up an East Coast branch of True North?
1: Um, well, What we're trying to do is train doctors to do it, and then as we publish this data showing effectiveness, I think the demand will increase enough that there'll be all kinds of places that'll do it. Our focus is trying to help make it happen where it's cost-effective. Right now, it, when you look at our price point, we're able to bring a person in in a private room, and um, you know all their meals, fasting, medical supervision, everything, starting at $149 a night. That makes it more effective. Most inpatient facilities charge two, three, four, five, or ten times as much, and as a consequence, it's not reachable to people. So, what we're hoping to do through the TruNet Health Foundation is help create a situation where cost-effective. Inpatient experiences can be offered so that people can get this kind of support in other areas. Unfortunately, right now, Short North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California, is the only facility that we've got that's able to do that in a cost-effective way currently.
0: Gotcha. All right. Well, I'll I'll keep my eyes open, and you'll uh, you'll you'll probably hear from me to uh, book a flight. I've been I've been um, flirting with the idea of coming out and seeing if you know the the little persistent things that have never been able to. To resolve on their own would would respond to a serious fast. So uh, maybe we'll do we'll do a follow up and I'll give you a testimonial. Sounds great. So so Dr. Alan Goldhammer, thank you so much. The uh, the work you're doing has 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 influenced me and has um, you know s- saved so many lives and made so many lives better that it's it's really an honor to uh, to hear about it from from the source and to. Uh, to help spread it in the world.
1: For your listeners that are interested, the True North Health uh, Center does offer something that they might be relevant. If they would like to go onto our website and fill out the registration forms, we offer a free phone consultation with me. So if they'd like to do that, they can fill out the forms which gets me their medical history. They can call True Health Center and uh, we offer a no-cost consultation to review kind of where they're at, things they might be able to do that they're not doing and evaluate whether fasting might be something that's relevant to them.
0: Great. And your website, I know, is, is, is healthpromoting.org?
1: It's actually www.healthpromoting.com com. or fasting.org.
0: Okay, healthpromoting.com, fasting.org. There, these uh, links will be in the show notes along with uh, links to some of the um, the research articles we talked about. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard about you most intensely from, from T. Colin Campbell, and I think it's, it's, it's published in Hull that uh, his wife Karen uh, resolved a, uh, a cancer at, uh, through, through, I think it was a little over two-week water fast. And uh, you know, when when someone like him talks about something miraculous, he's such a understated and careful scientist. Uh, when he talks about something as a, a miraculous treatment, I listen. So, uh, thank you for uh, for doing it and for, for for bringing this this ancient modality into uh, into the light of scientific evidence and for making it available so affordably.
1: Well, thanks for having
0: me. All right, be well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're new to the show, you can listen to archived episodes at plantyourself.com. If you'd like to support the show and make sure it keeps on going, there are a few ways to do so. One is to become a patron, and you can do that at plantyourself.com. Either click the Patreon or donate buttons, and you can do one-time or ongoing contributions. Those really, really help. You can also share this show and others on social media, in email, with friends, word of mouth, and let people know and let us grow. And you can also leave a review and a couple of stars, five ideally, on iTunes or Stitcher. And there are links to do so in the show notes uh, for this and every episode, which you can find at plantyourself.com. So in garden news, we are starting to germinate seeds indoors in preparation for our spring growing season. And we got out the old grow lights and we're um, hooking them up and turning them on. And they're gonna give those uh, little seeds some extra boost to help them germinate so that when we're ready to plant them in the ground, they're uh, nice and big and strong. So my wish for you and all of us is if there are things in our life that we'd like to grow and nurture and we're a little bit impatient, to have the discernment and judgment to see that we have options. We can wait for them to bloom in due season and sometimes there's little ways in which we can help give them a boost and a bit of a head start. And as always, be well, my friends.